Hello and welcome to the United Mates Football Podcast. My name is Joe and as always I'm joined by my co-host Kaitel as well as another member of the United Mates gang, Yoni. We've also, um, well we're also very excited to be joined by a guest from the world of music who has um, a a very special story to tell us. Um, So special in fact that I can forgive the fact that he's a Chelsea fan. Um, But before (laughs) we um, get into that, um, Yoni, how have um, you been doing since we last spoke? Uh, hi guys, thanks for having me again. Um, I've been doing relatively well, I think, um, at this time. I went to see some live music for the first time over the weekend in months, um, which was a very nice relief and something that I didn't really realise I had missed as much as I did. Um, but apart from that, doing well, glad to be on today. Brilliant. Oh no, that's cool you saw some live music. Yeah, I'm, I'm also missing that. Um, <laughs> Kai, normally um, normally this is you asking me the questions at this point, and recently you asked me a question relating to um, Spurs' Europa League opponent. So today um, the tables have turned, and at the time of recording, Arsenal are a couple of days away from playing the Irish team Dundalk in the Europa League. Um, after a bit of research online, I've discovered that the cores are from Dundalk, which is a four-piece Irish band made up of four sisters and of course Kai you were one of four brothers so I was wondering are we likely to see the debut of the Frankles coming anytime soon? I think uh, it's it's for the best and for many many reasons that that will never happen Um, (laughs) but the, the easiest and the least depressing reason is that none of us with the exception of maybe my brother Josh have even an ounce of musical talent in our bodies but I guess On that note, moving on to somebody with musical talent to spare. Our guest today is an old friend of mine. And as Joe mentioned, despite the team that he supports, um, you know, yeah, we've managed to sort of um, retain this friendship. But Dmitry Sitkovetsky is a celebrated classical musician and world-class violinist, conductor and arranger whose career in music has spanned over four decades and has allowed him to perform, instruct and educate across the globe. He's currently the music director of the North Carolina-based Greensboro Symphony Orchestra, and along with fellow musicians spanning from Seattle to Moscow, he's also been performing remote concerts as part of the New European Strings Virtual Ensemble, which has found a way to bring together artists and continue to make beautiful music during COVID times. So once again, welcome to the United Mates Football Podcast, musical maestro and Chelsea fan, Dmitry Sitkovetsky. Dima, how are you? Very well, thank you. Great, great to be in the company of non-professional musicians, which is nice because <laughs> musicians, when they get together, they they talk shop like nobody's business. But many uh, musicians actually, um, traditionally, big football fans and uh, more than just fans. You know, in Russia, I don't know that that that's going back to the Pele years. You know, there was a great goalie. Uh, Lev Yashin, legendary, legendary of Dynamo Moscow, of the uh, Soviet Union team. He was really one of the greatest goals. So he he had a personal friend, Eduard Garaj, who followed him, uh, you know, to here. He went to 1966, uh, you know, World Cup here in London, and uh, they were great friends. And uh, I have football fans in my family for at least two uh, three generations, most likely, because I come from a, a real dynasty of uh, musicians. I am a fourth generation of professional musicians, starting in 
1896, if you can believe it. My great-grandfather <laughs> became a wow. professional musician. He was a concert master of the Opera House in Baku, which is now a separate country. Azerbaijan at that time was part of Russia. And then uh, uh, grandfather was... Uh, and grandmother was, uh, they're all musicians. They're either pianists or violinists. So, so now, of course, my daughter now, she's the only one who's working now. She's in Germany, Julia, of course, that's your, your older brother, uh, former classmate. So she's now in Dresden, rehearsing as we speak tonight for their first performance in all, will be almost eight months by the time she she goes on stage. Let's hope it's it's going to happen because Europe is shutting down again. So we just hope that Julia will be able to to sing. But she's been in Germany for almost a month now. First quarantine and then rehearsals. And now it's just, she's in Dresden, which is one of the big opera houses. Anyway, so football, football runs parallel uh, my life practically as long as I can remember myself because we used to play all the time between the lessons in the Central Music School in Moscow. And uh, I supported actually an interesting club, which uh, had nothing to do with anything I was good at. Torpedo, if you knew, Torpedo was, was, a, was an important club because I once saw the genius of Russian football, Eduard Strelzov. He had a very, very unusual life story be brilliant, sort of like Russian Pele. And then he had a horrible story where he was accused, wrongly accused of uh, rape of one of the ministers. So he got in jail. In his best years of playing, he was in jail. Of course, in jail, he was a hero because everybody knew Eduard Strelzov. And then he came out when he was heavier, you know, late 20s, maybe 30s already, and he played for that club. But you should, you, you should have seen, I hope there's some, I never, never looked at this. I'm sure there's gotta be some YouTube. He could not run, but he saw the field like nobody else. And uh, this is something I, I will, and so that was enough for me to support, to support that club. It was a very good club at that time. And uh, that's, that's how I, I even played, believe it or not, Shortly before I immigrated from Russia, I spent one summer in the Crimea. At that time, it was part of the Soviet Union. And uh, a relationship of, of mine, as he used to be married to my aunt, the, the captain, and uh, he was also both captain and manager of the Simferopol Tavria. There was a, was, was a club which was sort of in the upper echelon. And he took liking to me and we played two by two on on the sand in, you know by the by the by the by the black sea and then at some point they had a game and he invited me and i, I they won the game he even scored the goal so we were all excited and then i went i, I must have been already in my early 20s 20 maybe not quite 22 no i was 20, yeah 21 22 and then of course there was a big party and musicians pride themselves in, uh, you know, having a good stamina for alcohol. So I thought until that evening, until I got to be drinking with the football players. That was a different league, a really different league. 
And then the next day, of course, everybody went to the Russian sauna, you know, to, and they with those things that they, you know, they beat you with the with a birch, uh, uh, you know, uh, birch tree, whatever, uh, the, the branches. It's a famous Russian. And so they get it all out of their system. And then the next day or the, the following day, they play again. But boy, do they drink. Wow. Ooh, that, that was serious, serious drinking. That That's when I realized that musicians can think they can drink, but uh, next to footballers, they have no chance. Well, you, you told us that musicians like to talk shop and apparently, yeah, they like to, to drink too, but we're, we're, we're certainly no musicians. So we'll, we'll try to talk a little bit of shop and not too much. You'll probably be, be thankful to hear, but we'll definitely talk our shop, which is going to be football a little well, bit cool. later. You, you just mentioned a bunch of great names. Yashin, who was what the black spider, I think that was his nickname. Absolutely. This other guy going to prison reminds me of uh, Ronaldinho who was recently in a Paraguayan <laughs> prison. And you mentioned how this guy came out and he had all this perspective you can only imagine how much time he had to sort of like think about his, his game when he was in probably solitary confinement in, in prison. But moving away from that subject um, and uh, not on to, to drinking, although we did mention drinking, this is going to be food related. So um, Dima, you, you mentioned Baku already. I, I think most people would probably assume that you're Russian, but technically that's where you were born in, in Azerbaijan, Baku. So yeah. I'm not an expert on yeah. Azerbaijan and Honestly, Baku is a bit of a sensitive subject because that's where your team, Chelsea, thumped yeah. Arsenal in the Europa League final a couple of years ago. But I managed to sort of like stir up the bravery to do some research. And I realized that in Azerbaijan, there's a tradition of pairing tea and jam together. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I think to English people, yeah. that sounds a bit blasphemous, maybe. But it got me thinking about weird sort of pairings of food that I used to enjoy. So I'm going to out myself and tell everybody that when I was a kid, I didn't drink milk, but... Obviously, cereal is quite a big deal when, when you're a kid. It's quite exciting, the colorful boxes and stuff. And my brothers always ate it. So I would make cereal, but instead of milk, I would use apple juice, <laughs> which judge away. Feel free to judge me. But Dima, I wanted to know, you've probably done nothing as offensive as offensive of that. But um, do you have a strange combination of food that, that you are a fan of? Have you ever put two weird things together and enjoyed it like that? <laughs> oh, of course. Um, actually, I irritate my wife, who you know very well, Susan. Because I, I have my cereal with kefir, uh, not with milk, but kefir, it's a sour milk. And that comes from probably, because I didn't really grow up in Baku. My mother was really from there and her parents still live there. So they would send me there to grandparents for some, you know, lengthy stay as I was. So, so I absorbed obviously some, some of the tastes because, you know, the Georgian, Armenian, Zeri cuisine, you know, the, the sort of beyond Caucasus is some of the, for me, it's one of the best food ever. Really, it's the, the, all the, all kinds of shish kebabs. But don't forget that Baku is on Caspian Sea. Caspian Sea is the place where black caviar used to be anyway. Now, apparently, it's, it's running low. But I use, I remember uh, black caviar wooden barrels on the street and with those huge uh you know the wooden spoons they would just you know pounds upon pounds and it cost not not much now it's uh, it's more expensive than gold you know you go to petrosian or one of those i mean it's ridiculous how much and you get a little a little a little jar at that time so i grew up uh you know eating caviar like nobody's business and of course the sturgeon that was very big. Sturgeon, I love till this day. And I, 
in London, you don't really find much sturgeon at all. But in New York, there's a sturgeon king, actually, uh, Barney Greengrass, on the same street where my mother used to live in Manhattan on 86. And he's on 86 in Amsterdam. She's on 86 in West End. And I always go there and always take, if Julie is, is in town, I, I, I would... I would take her there. Susan loves it. My mother loved it. So sturgeon, caviar, and of course, all kinds of shish kebab and things like that. But the, the day starts and ends with a special uh, sour milk thing, which is called matzoni. So the closest thing here you could get is kefir. Susan cannot even see it. I mean, she gets sick just by <laughs> looking at it. But I have my cereal every morning. I, I feel great. I could have kefir three times a day. <laughs> there right. you go. So kefir, sturgeon, and caviar, although from the sounds of things, never, never together, which is probably for the best. Certain things like eel, we get smoked eel. That I acquired later on in the Baltic Sea, because we used to go to the Baltic Sea, uh, you know, to near Riga, Latvia. And there they would, they would just uh, catch eels and then smoke it. And we would get it straight from the, from the fishermen. It was just fantastic. And so now we get it from Panzers for a small fortune. But anyway, <laughs> but it's still, it's still good. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'll ask Yanni too. Um, Yanni, are there any sort of obscure or delicacy type foods that you're into? Or like myself, have you ever done something bizarre and put two things together that don't go together? Well, you're kind of childhood's actions made me remember that when I was a kid, and this is something I stress I don't do anymore, I used to dip kind of any sandwich I was having in tea. Um, I just found it really brought all of the filling and flavors together and made the bread a bit well, soggy and it just it just went down well. I mean, people dip sandwiches in soup now um, and this was like a version of that. Um, I have grown out of that. The most recent thing I tried recently um, was sort of putting peanut butter in a bacon sandwich which didn't not work um <laughs> and i would you know it just any anyone else who feels like being a bit adventurous or spicing it up i would recommend it all right peanut butter in the bacon sandwich i guess i'm not a meat eater but um maybe i'll, I'll vicariously have the opportunity to have something similar one day um otherwise joe how about you yes suppose it's a bit weird but at university I didn't make many meals but I'd often make spaghetti bolognese and it's not that if we ask but <laughs> I, what I'd um what I'd do is I'd I'd get a load of mozzarella and put loads of um soy sauce with the mozzarella and kind of maybe put a few onions in there and fry it for a bit and that my the people I lived with at the time always found that very weird but I actually thought it tasted really good okay. <laughs> so, so that's my slightly quirky um thing that I'd do back in yeah. a few years ago that's like Japanese Italian fusion. Yeah, exactly. Fusion. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, now we're just going to move on to a few sort of personal questions for Dima now. So sure. I'll, I'll start this bit off. So, Dima, I know we've mentioned already, but you were born in the Soviet Union and you were born into a family of highly prestigious musicians spanning multiple generations. But, um, at the age of 22, you decided to leave the Soviet Union. And in order to do so, you had to convince the authorities, I believe, that you had um, medical issues, which was clearly a very brave and ultimately life-altering decision. So what I was interested in was, 
can you explain why you made this choice? And also, um, how did you manage to pull it off? Mm. Well, that's that, that's that's quite a long story. But to make it uh, sort of more uh, manageable within our uh, talk, I'll tell you that you know, growing up uh, in the family of successful musicians, I knew right away early on that this glamour of being a great Soviet artist who goes abroad and gets all the, you know, applause and uh, flowers and acclaim. And, you know, it's a special status to be able to do it. But at the same time, in practice, uh, all the great Soviet artists were glorified slaves because any uh, member of the foreign Russian embassy could order them the great, the biggest names. Uh, imagine a little clerk in the in the embassy could say, "Well, you're not allowed to go and meet with this one. You're not allowed." Apart from the fact that all the fees and everything went to the state, so it was a way of earning foreign currency as well. And we, you know, all the artists get very little uh, of of their real fees. And but that was not even the main point. The main point that. I saw from inside, because I was the insider in a way, I grew up in the, in the family. And so I knew all the ins and outs. If I were not from that, it probably would have taken me longer to understand how the system works. And I hated it because, you know, no matter what a great artist you might be, but you still owned by the government. And, uh, you know, the party, the KGB and everything. And, you know, being right in the center of it, in Moscow, there were already files on all the 10th grade of the Central Music School had uh, files in KGB on each one of us. Which one was, uh, you know, was to be recruited, which one to be watched out. This one is clearly anti-Soviet, so be, uh, uh, be careful. And people would not be allowed to travel. They would be put on the blacklist all kinds of things. I knew it all along. We read all kinds of, uh, you know, forbidden literature like Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov and all that. We, we were very much in the, in the mixture of things. It's like being in London, except more so, because uh, Moscow was very much the center. It was like a city-state. And everything was there. The government was there. there everything, the power, the money, everything. So I wanted to there were two ways of doing it. One uh, of planning it uh, because I was pretty good at what I was doing. And I was already laureate of several competitions. I was chosen to go to Brussels competition in 76. And I was expected to, to win the first prize. So the most effective for my second life, for my career in the West would have been to go there, get the first prize and then defect to say, I'm no, you know, run like so many of Barishnikov, Nuriev, and Victoria Mulova, now a friend of mine who also lives in, she, they, they left that way. But the, my mother, who had a very good uh, career in Russia and, and, and she traveled abroad as well, that would have been the end of her career. And she would never be able to come out. And I just couldn't do it because that would have been a very selfish and for all my other relatives that that would have been very dramatic so the other way was longer and more painful and riskier so i had to convince 
the government that their whole investment, my whole years of education, and all that went to nothing, that I was no longer a valuable asset. For this, I should have, uh, I, I faked my, uh, you know, tendonitis. I said, I have tendonitis. I did not go to that competition, which was already a big surprise because everybody wanted to go. It was very difficult to be selected. You have to win the competition there and here. So I went to a hospital for a month I got the papers, I got the uh, sort of academic leave uh, on medical grounds, which was the absolute insurance policy. So they wouldn't be able to kick me out of Moscow Conservatory once I applied to immigrate. And basically I convinced, I disappeared from concert life. I, did, I actually had not stepped on stage now it's an interesting sort of deja vu, but much different circumstances. Now I haven't seen the stage since March, but that's not quite eight months. At that time, I did not perform for a year and a half. And at 21, 22, that's a long time. You know, so I was risking maybe never come out if, this, if my plan would be known or if they call my for whatever. You know, and they asked my mother if she was going with me. She said, no, no, it's only his decision, which was true. I was the only one in my family who wanted to go. So they decided, well, he's finished as a violinist. He's not going to play. He's not performing. He didn't go to the competition. He's got problems. So let him go. So that worked. And that, of course, I had great minds helping me. It was not just, you know, I could just came up with this plan all, all 21. Uh, but anyway, then you start a whole new life. You come here, you have no violin because they wouldn't let you take your violin. So you had to play on board instruments, board bow and this and that. But I knew that what, I, what they couldn't stop was something that was inside of me. And that was not just my talent, but also my the culture that I absorbed and, uh, you know, a certain quality of, of, of a survivor because, uh, you know, I had to finish one life. It was a particular day when I had my ticket to leave Russia forever. 77, that was no perestroika. That was just one time forever. And some people I never saw again and thought that they would never see me because at that time, Soviet Union was not looking like anything like what happened you know 10 years later with perestroika so it was a dramatic uh uh moment but i had a whole new life ahead of me so i came to vienna then rome and then i was waiting for my visa to be allowed in the states and then i arrived in the states and within one week i was already accepted at juilliard and there started my really very very different and new life which brings me right now, 43 years later, right here, talking to you guys. <laughs> There's a lot of things happened in between. But in the, in a nutshell, that, that, that's what happened. Sounds like somebody needs to make a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does, it does read like a movie script. That's true. That's true. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story. And I'm sure we'll get into more details about it as the podcast goes on. Um, but in researching your life, Dima, ahead of 
ahead of today, I was pointed in, in the direction of a TED talk that you did about three years ago, uh, which I encourage anyone listening to check out. It's on YouTube. Um, you get to see them perform as well, which is wonderful. Um, but something that stood out to me is something that you say your wife says about you, which is that you're not made for comfort, that there's a kind of restlessness that is something that has pushed your curiosity for the world, for music, and as a result, your creativity and your creative endeavors. Um, from the outside, at least, it seems your life now, in comparison to leaving Russia as a refugee, um, is relatively settled. You're married, you have a family, you've lived in London for over 30 years. Um, so do, do you feel comfort now? And how do you can continue to be curious and creative in what you do? Well, uh, you're right. And you, you're not completely right, because uh, if you have that inside of you, whether you are, you know, in the suppressive regime or in comfort uh, of my West Hampstead house, certainly a very comfortable place to be going uh, through pandemic, you know, when, when people squeezed in a tiny place where, you know, there's no, there's no room for privacy, that would be terrible or, or financial trouble. But I, we, we all have that inner uh, anxiety and all creative uh, people I believe they they cannot sit still and we always uh, I always question um, you know have I done uh, it's not even a question have I done uh, the right things. Maybe I should have done this because I've done many things in many different areas, uh, you know, because I have a very eclectic taste uh, in the arts in general. And I've combined different arts in uh, with music and I've put together real shows with people, you know, with uh, my one of my latest ventures three years ago, finally, after seven years dreaming about it, I put together uh, completely reinvented Soldier's Tale of uh, Igor Stravinsky, where I, I commissioned a new text. I completely reshuffled the things, and I invited the Russian Bob Dylan, Andrei Makarevich from the Time Machine rock group, who I'd known for years, but I hadn't been in touch with him, and also Vladimir Posner. Of, uh, he's the most respected and the most famous journalist with the biggest talk show on television. So they were the two actors and I was also acting the three main roles and there are three musicians and two dancers, it's a real show. And it was a huge success. And I would, would have never uh, been able, every time I started something off the beaten uh, path, uh, my colleagues, always thought that I was crazy. Oh, come on, that's not going to work. I mean, when I did my first transcription of the Goldberg Variations, uh, which probably if you go now on, on, on Google, you would have more <laughs> entries with the Goldberg Variation. People think I'm the closest thing to Johann Sebastian Bach when they meet. Oh, my God, that's the one who... But at the time, when I uh, tried to sit my two friends, Misha Maisky and Gerard Crosset, very distinguished musicians but also my friends and colleagues and they were staying at my house in Wiesbaden we lived in Germany at that time I said guys come and we were rehearsing for something else and I said I, I'm just in the middle of this transcription I just wanted to hear I said what Goldberg oh you gotta be I, you 
nuts. I mean, come on. Then my managers, when I, when I finished it, they said, oh, no. Everybody was just against it, dead set against it. And yet it became a huge success. And uh, uh, it's played all over uh, uh, the world. And, you know, oh, probably when I die, the, the, the only thing they're going to know in 100 years would be that transcription. So you never know. You know, one thing I do know, that if you believe in something uh, and you, you, you're really just drawn to it like a magnet, you've got to do it, uh, no matter what the others think. And uh, even this full and other things, but here they think, oh, for God's sake, I mean, you really, you're not serious. If you're sure that this is something that it has, you know, you cannot stop thinking about it. Just do it. Because that that is, that is what what one could 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 be calling. You know, it really calls upon you. And this is what uh, this pandemic, for instance, proved. Especially first two three months, I was incredibly uh, active as a transcriber. I did this whole new, uh, you know, Bukovina songs, which. Uh, I, I was just like with the Goldbergs. I was completely immersed, and I couldn't get enough. I got somebody, you know, assisting me in in America, and he was able to to make some living because he lost all his money as a composer and everything. But he's great with this Sibelius program, so he would put the original into that program, which speeded up the process. And uh, I never thought that I would get to it. It was a long time, uh, you know, for a year and a half. I thought about this project. But there was just no time to do it. Now I got the time, so I just just stayed with it. And now, if somebody would tell me that I would be doing it in spite of the fact that my orchestra is all over the world, you know, from Seattle to Moscow, then in Seattle, San Francisco, uh, you know, Miami, New York, North Carolina, but it's all over Europe: London, Paris, Zurich, you name it, uh, Germany, and then Moscow. Finally. And, and of course, Scandinavia, because my orchestra was born there, Finland and Sweden. So that also seemed completely mission impossible. But, you know, I'm like a bull in the, in the, in the arena. In the, if you show red, you can be, once you say, oh, that's impossible, or, uh, that, you, you got my attention. Really? Or oh, watch me. Yeah, sometimes you don't. It's, not like you, but I will certainly try. And, um, you know, that's what makes life exciting because, you know, there was the point of just constant recycling and this and that. And look, now, <laughs> you know, making parallel with football, look what's going on in Premier League. I mean, my goodness, Everton is in first place, Aston Villa just finally lost first match, otherwise just killed Liverpool, and Leeds is in the fourth. I mean, unbelievable. All these, and they play well. It's not like all of a sudden, they, no, 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 no. They've got, every team can beat any team. And, uh, you know, my team is at the moment the very unglamorous 10th place. Arsenal is there about, man, you fortunately even lower but anyway you know man city cannot get its act together i mean what's going on but at the same time if you compare it to last season 
where Liverpool was just proceeding, you know, it was a procession. I mean, they were great and they were justifiably better than anyone, but it was not as exciting because this season, I mean, look at all this. I mean, any match, I mean, you, you could tell that anything could happen. I think that that sort of uh, much more, it adds spice to life. Because one thing, of course, I'm trying just to totally re, kind of reset myself because for so many years, for over 40 years, doing in a year and a half from now, I mean, specifically what rehearsals, where I would be traveling or at least a year. Now I have a trip in four weeks. I'm not sure whether it will happen or not. You know, you, you just can't plan anymore. You can't plan. My daughter is supposed to sing next week. She's been rehearsing for, can you put a lot of money to say, yeah, she will definitely, no. Uh, nobody knows. So you have to, it's a, it's a painful process for somebody who's been doing this for so many years, but you have to uh, reset your brains in a way. You know, the expectations of plans, realizing you just have to be put away someplace. You know, it's just, you, you live one day at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, the unpredictability of the world at the moment means that things like in the Premier League, we're seeing more unpredictable things happen. Um, when planning does go out the window a bit. Um, Kai's alluded to your sort of travels around the world, how you got to where you are now. Um, and there's an extraordinary story as well about your own violin and how it followed you out of Russia and you were reunited with it in the USA. Um, and I read in an interview you did with Daniel Finkelstein in the Times that um, at the moment you, I believe, have a 300-year-old Stradivarius, which you described as one of the greatest sounded violins at the time, and also that it's worth 6.5 million pounds i don't know who imposes that value on it or where that comes from but it's more it was six, six and a half uh three years ago by now it's 10 million dollars but 10 million you dollars. Know, wow. it, it's all relative you, you can't you can't really <laughs> sure, <laughs> maybe. you can't make another one <laughs> sure you have to you have to go back in time and be in cremona you know it just so happened that the peak of violin making was in that little town, not particularly distinguished town, Cremona, where three great families, uh, the family of Amati, Guarneri, and Stradivari. And everybody came there and they were in Stradivari's workshop. And he lived to be a, an old man, 93 years old. And he never let his children make their own violins. They were all named Antonio Stradivari, even though they all worked for him and other great makers of the future, they all worked for him, but he was a very smart man. He was the most successful uh, violin maker in his lifetime, <laughs> not posthumously. So, yeah. but you know, that was the peak. It's sort of like the Renaissance, you know, in Florence with all those phenomenal geniuses like everywhere, Leonardo and Michelangelo and, and Brunelleschi and all these. I mean, it just so happened that they, they all met at that extraordinary, and of course they had great Medici and others in them. Uh, it was was just a combination. And then the Pope or, uh, you know, in Rome, they were trying to get them to work for them. It was a, it was a right time. It never happened again like this. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, with, with violins, yes. 
Uh, and that that story, yeah, Danny was he's my Chelsea. I met him as a, as a Chelsea supporter. Yeah, and uh, so and 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 when it was three hundred years of my strad, and there was also forty years since I left Russia. That was the year two thousand seventeen. And he thought, oh, let's let's do an article, you know, in the in the magazine section of the of the Saturday edition. And we spent, I don't know. Maybe three hours was a very long uh, lunch at Singapore Gardens just down here. It's his favorite restaurant. Oh, I, he was taking notes or recording it. And then I brought him over here to my house and I showed him the strat. He was all excited. Anyway, <laughs> he, so that, that's how that article. And so we, you know, we've been going. What, what he wrote there is, is, is absolutely true. He, he really had no idea because he's not an expert in classical music. And uh, so somebody just said, you know, who are you going to? I said, I'm going with Dmitry Sikorsky. He said, what? Yeah, and so forth. And then in the article, it, it, he, he wrote a good, good piece at that time. Anyway, so let's talk football. Let's see what, <laughs> what a miserable round. I mean, I, I wrote, speaking of those guys, I wrote a, an SMS to them after I said, now, after all the money that Chelsea spent in the summer, we are proud of having a week with two nil-nil draws. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is that? I mean, of course, everything's relative. We were so poor in defense before, and the goalie was just a huge liability. Now it is an improvement from that point of view. But on the other hand, we couldn't do anything up in front. You know, one thing at the time. You can't. You can't fix everything. What about Arsenal? How do you, how do you, because I, I thought it was getting so much better with Arteta for a while. And you did, you did beat us at the, at the cup, uh, you know, at the, at the end of last season. What happened now? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> it, it's not going well anymore. That's, that's for sure. Um, but I think we've got this, we've got this section on Chelsea and football uh, coming right up. I just want to, before we jump more heavily into, into football, I had one last question on the music front. Um, and I know that we, um, earlier, I'd mentioned um, your work with uh, the NES virtual ensemble since quarantine. Um, and honestly, like I, I edit this podcast myself personally. So as the person who does that, it gave me a bit of anxiety seeing your these videos of the NES because it's so many musicians remotely performing all over the world. And then I'm assuming it's somebody's job at the end to kind of, put that together which i i probably wouldn't want to do but whoever does it good work because it looks great and yeah. ends up sounding amazing so obviously like i was saying there's so many components um going into that but it, it ends up yeah. seamless so it's it's like a live performance but i want to know because seeing as technology has allowed for you and these other musicians to continue to collaborate during the pandemic um yeah how much has the technology sort of saved the live performance and then well how much is lost it substitutes, it substitutes the live performance because even when there's no Zoom, actually, is not very good uh, for uh, even talking at the same time. You get, you get, it's getting better. But in any case, there isn't yet a technology does not have a delay. So for music, that's death. So we couldn't possibly be playing at the same time. It would mm -hmm. not work because there's always a delay, you know, in every broadcast in the in the fastest maybe one day they will they will create something that will you know delay so for, that was 
So what you what one does, first of all, it's great deal of preparation. Of course, I do all the, uh, I send it out. And then I establish a very strict tempo and also a dynamic, the boings, the fingers, all the technical things. And if necessary, I have sessions with individual players. So there's a great deal. And then they practice individually. Then my, uh, the, the guy who, who creates it, uh, who puts it together, he's a composer and a jazz pianist, but he knows music. And he's done a lot of those videos with a big band during the band. He's also married to one of our uh, uh, musicians, violist. She plays that. She's the one from Turkey. And uh, he's American. And I uh, ask him, I send him from my Sibelius program from the computer, a computer generated uh, audio in the right tempo. And we also decide on what pitch, because pitch could be 440, 444, 440. So we do 441. Absolutely. Everybody has to tune. Then he gets that uh, MIDI track and he transfers it into the click track. And that is a very important thing. So everybody, some of them you see, because you see big uh, headphones, they play, they record themselves individually, everybody in different times. First, usually it's, I'm the one who makes the first one. And often I send my own video for them just to also get closer to the style, to the phrasing, to some agogics and so forth. So while I play, I have little headphones that you, they're almost unseen in my yeah they're really which play uh, which which play that thing with clicks. So you have to be stay with those clicks. And he sends it to me, and sometimes we have several uh, communications where he said, "Is this the right?" I said, "No, please make that one. It's a little. I take a little time here, so it's just a lot of preparation." Then. We all send our videos, and that's where his work begins. First, he creates audio. You have to see it. It's, it looks fantastic. I mean, imagine there's 20 plus or sometimes 18, 17 from 17, and up to the last one, which hasn't come out yet. He's just about to, to gather all the material. will be 23 players. So let's say from uh, uh, nine, one I did for a very small, the last one was just for nine, from nine to 23. So he has this uh, incredible switchboard with different colors and everything. And so he puts it all together as audio. And then he sends it to me. And I listen very carefully with his course. I mark and I send him a whole, you know, feedbacks. Here's this and then make this one's louder, this one's softer. Here's a, that finally he, I approve the audio and then his imagination. He's a great uh, visual artist. You know, he makes them go like this. He makes them disappear. He makes them uh, and wait. And I can't wait now that we've just recorded the seventh of this Book of Venus songs. We're going to make a cycle. We're going to make one going into the other with some things. And I'm sure he'll come up with some interesting ideas. I'm going to suggest some things, but he's the one who does it. Right. So he is right. the editor in chief, <laughs> so, so to speak. But it sounds like you yeah. have the sort of um, the authority on the the quality control 
because it sounds like your ear is about as finely tuned as anyone's ear could possibly be. And like I said, my head's sort of spinning from just conceptualizing the, the project and everything that goes into it, but it looks great. As you were saying, he does a good job with the visuals and then obviously it sounds great too. Um, so I guess now we can yeah, ease into a bit more football and some Chelsea chat too. So um, <laughs> an article that um, Yoni referred to uh, written by Daniel Finkelstein in the Times about you, I think Joe as well might refer to as well, but um, he mentions your first violin teacher. I suppose you were talking to him about your first violin teacher and the pressure that he put on you from an early age. And then also, obviously, we, we mentioned your parents being musicians too. And the legacy of your father is arguably the best Russian violinist of the 20th century. On top of the pressure from your, um, from your teacher, there was obviously, yeah, a lot of expectation on you. So jumping back to football, because I know we said we were going to talk about football. How similar do you think that the pressure put on young aspiring footballers is how similar is that pressure to the pressure of being a young aspiring musician oh i think they are similar except uh that as a musician you can have a long life if you're lucky and if you're smart you can have a long life you can start you know i've been on stage uh for 54 years i won my first competition when i was 12 years old i was just in prague last month uh, judging that competition as a president of the jury. And uh, imagine 54 years ago, I was there already. That was my first trip. So I, I've been at it for a long time. And if it were not for the pandemic, I would continue. Now, who knows? Maybe it's early retirement. Maybe it's just uh, a sabbatical. Who knows? It all depends how you, you're going to. Nobody knows how it's going to. Uh, but even if I never go on stage again, I hope to go there in, in four weeks. But anyway, even if I don't, I, I've done a lot. And I think for the young ones, for the young footballer, uh, especially if you, uh, you know, you show early uh, great signs of great talent and expectations are some of the worst things uh, that public but especially your family and the people or your, your classmates or, or your, your uh, uh, the teammates. Because I'm sure uh, the reason Frank Lampard became so incredibly successful as a footballer, because he comes from a lot of expectations. You know, he came from a, a wonderful footballer, his father, and he always looked up to him. It was great authority. And then his uncle, you know, Harry Redknapp, my goodness, such a, you know, he's managed just about every, every football club <laughs> in, in England, you know. And uh, then his, his, his cousin was a terrific footballer. I think maybe uh, more gifted, naturally more gifted, than Frank, because remember in West Ham, they used to call him Fat Frank. You know, he was a little bit chunk, who knows? So he worked. So I remember very well, I had a, a dinner a hundred years ago, just when Chelsea bought him in 2001 with, uh, with David Miller, MP, he was a huge Chelsea fan and big uh, music lover. Uh, he, he, he was doing musical quiz on radio, oh, I don't know, Radio 3, I think, on Radio 3. And he did a musical uh, quiz, especially for me, after dinner in his house. <laughs> anyway, so I remember very well in 2001, he said, oh, God, I mean, they bought Frank Lampard. What a stupid move. 
imagine how, <laughs> how wrong he was. You know, at that time, nobody gave him any time. And yet he worked and he always stayed late after and he practiced and, and he became the biggest scorer from midfield, for God's sake. I mean, that's an incredible achievement. I don't know whether he'll succeed as much as a manager. It's early days. But I think that, uh, you know, that I'll, I'll prove it to you. He's got more expectations on him right from the start. But he can handle it. If he, he had already, he comes in a way similar to me, uh, you know, dying or ever. If you, oh, well, of course, you know, as good as your father. Oh, of course, you know, as successful as your mom. Oh, but your your mom already played with Oxford when she was nine years old. I didn't. I didn't play with Oxford until I was 15. And does it make me a failure? Well, at that time, probably it did feel like a failure. But yeah, that's important. So I think they need uh, sort of a cool encouragement not hot encouragement, because, oh, you, you know, like all these, uh, you know, mothers of uh, famous musicians, of, of child prodigies, they're, they're the most dangerous species on earth because they just think, oh, my son, the genie, my son, you know, my mother was not like this at all because, <laughs> because she was busy with her own career. She was an absent mother. In, in many ways, that was good, but still, you know, hard, hard act to follow. Um, but those ones that just hover. So you need sort of like a cool encouragement. Oh, that's okay. That's you, you've done well, but that's it. Don't make, you know, don't make them feel that, oh, now it's going to be, we don't know when this big moment is going to come. Musicians never know what's the most important concert of their life. Only looking back. Oh, I guess that must have been something that I would look back and, you know, oh, that was, that was a special moment. The same thing, footballs, they don't know. Sometimes you, you feel that something's cooking, something's going on, and it's going to be an exceptional evening. I'm sure the same, the same for footballers. They, they just know, you know, but it's a, it's a team sport. So you need, you need also great support. Uh, and, you know, you need to look at all these great players. Uh, Timo Werner was scoring at well, Germany, now he cannot even get a decent pass from anybody. Or if they do pass him, he, he can't get it. And, and, and the confidence of the striker. And look look at, at Tammy Abraham in the meantime. He was doing so well. Now, what, what is he? Chopped liver? I mean, really. All of a, all of a sudden, what? He's he no good, but he doesn't get any time to play. And the others, I think it's embarrassment of riches now. Not only at Chelsea. Look at Man U fabulous Ajax player from the back. What is he doing there, sitting there, looking at those who cannot play, who cannot pass, and Pogba is no good. And he's sitting there, he's hot. He could be as good as De Bruyne, given a chance. I like you know? to be, yeah. I'd like a player like him at Arsenal, actually, playing sort of in behind Arsenal. Yeah. I think he made a mistake by going to Man U. It's a wrong club for him. Uh, that That's because we all love Man U anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know they they can play wonderful players. I mean, what's mm -hmm. wrong with 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 Rashford or the Fernandez or I mean they have fun. Amata played great against us actually. Mata is a I love. Well, I guess Mata. if there's one game that he's going to try hard for, it's going to be against Chelsea probably. Against <laughs> Chelsea, exactly, exactly. That's so funny. But, um, but look at our old man Mourinho. Now 
he's shaping uh, Tottenham. He, for the first time, they actually won ugly <laughs> in their history, I think. <laughs> they yeah. didn't know the meaning of it. <laughs> now they won ugly just, just, just yesterday. Well, Joe's a, a Spurs fan, so he'll have he'll probably have some strong feelings, uh, thoughts, and feelings on on Mourinho. But I think he, Joe, you have some other Chelsea related. Yeah, on the Tottenham thing. Yeah, we certainly won ugly last night. But you know, amazingly, under Jose, things are looking quite positive. So we'll we'll see what we'll see what he can conjure up um, at Spurs. But um, going back to Chelsea, I know you were talking yeah. about Frank Lampard a bit earlier, and you said how you know you're confident he will he will succeed as a manager at Chelsea. But obviously, in the summer. Chelsea invested a lot of money in a lot of very talented players. So off the back of signing the likes of Werner, Havertz, the new goalie, Mendy, and, and Chilwell, Silver, lots of people, what what does Lampard need to achieve this season for it to be considered a success, do you think? I think he needs to... I, you can forget about winning uh, the Premier League or Champions League. I think... Uh, uh, maybe a cup, maybe a FA, a FA Cup, because they, they always have a And uh, they, they have to make, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the top four would be a really big achievement, even bigger than... Uh, because last year, there, there were two teams sort of, uh, you know, in the running for the top, and then Leicester was threatening and then just crumbled in the end, you know. But there was a big pause, so there was not... I think... I think Rogers is a very good manager. I mean, he's he's made that into quite an outfit. Uh, I'm very fond of Ancelotti, so Everton, I think, is looking is looking really good, really, really, really good. Yeah. Any team, you know, I think Mourinho's got in him something. He might just, uh, you know, he might just will it out because he's got the players. It's a it's a great group. look at Son. He's on fire. Son is up. absolutely. Son, because I do this, I don't know whether you guys do that fantasy, uh, uh, fantasy. Yeah, I do now draft as well. We should probably get together uh, and 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 form a, a friendly league because I always play against people. But I'm 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 doing pretty well in my leagues. You know, first, second, sometimes third. But you know, it's a guessing game. I stupidly in my fantasy league, I just changed Bamford before the last round <laughs> for Watkins. I mean, what? <laughs> because, and he, then he scores three goals and I, I'm daring my hair. But what can you do? That, that, <laughs> Bamford was I a, mean, a Chelsea player, right? Once upon a time. Yeah. Was he really? Yeah, he, he was. I, I, he, never, um, he never actually played a game. He was one of those guys who they sort of sent on loan many times and then sold him off yeah. to Middlesbrough, I think. But yeah. yeah, well, they, they listen, their track record in that department who, who came and went through <laughs> Chelsea, oh, I think yeah. they took they the top of the tree. De I mean, how could they? De Bruyne and Salah, I mean, and many others, and many others. And then the others, the big stars like Torres, who came in Liverpool, El Nino. What was he doing at Chelsea? <laughs> Not much. Uh, and, and he still scores now for Atletico, believe it or not. He's yeah, what, he was helpful years for them. Ago. I think he just, just retired. He went to Japan. And then he, I think at the end of last season, he hung up He hung up his boots. Maybe he was already in Atletico. And he was... He was yeah, but he, he, incredibly talented. But, I mean, was a wonderful striker, yeah. No, we'll see. I mean, it's an exciting, it's like, it's like a cook who has maybe, we talked about food early in the program, you know, he's got sort of such diverse ingredients, 
I don't know whether he could actually make a, 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 you know, a digestible meal out of it. <laughs> I mean, a really good meal because he's got from such different cultures. I mean, they made such hay about Havertz. I felt he's been a liability over the last three games for us. So far, it's just not working. And why is he preferring him against his favorite mount, who's always there? You know, he always plays consistently well, sometimes better, sometimes better. But he's a Harvard's just like a babe in the woods. You know, he doesn't know what hit him. It's just too yeah. fast, too rough, too, too uncomfortable. Maybe eventually he'll get, you know, what Pollock? I mean, he doesn't look like Pollock at all. Pollock had, <laughs> had cojones to, to begin with. You know, <laughs> he, he had a commanding presence, no matter what. No, I mean, but let's give him give him time. I think he will. I don't understand his whole thing about with Rudiger, who played actually, who can't play well, and defense and, and everything. Well, it, lots of problems, lots of problems. But not that the others don't have it. That, that that's a big hope. That's a big hope. The the reason I think Chelsea. I remember last season. Sometimes there was a run when they started finally winning games, and they went up. And then the others, when they would not play well or draw instead of winning, and then the others would lose, like Arsenal or you know or Man U. They, they would be worse. Yeah. So it's a topsy turvy time. Topsy turvy time. I I don't know who can actually hold the reins steadily now it just doesn't doesn't seem to be in the in the mix we'll see we'll see but it's a, it's exciting time i mean there's some great great players to look at and uh it's an exciting football it's about the only entertainment we have it's sort of life speaking of topsy-turvy times i mean you mentioned earlier that you were having conversations about Frank Lampard when he joined as a player in 2001. So I assume you were a Chelsea fan pre-Abramovich, before that era began. Much. Um, okay. Um, so uh, I, was, I was Chelsea fan when they were just mid-table, you know, occasionally brilliant game. And, oh, I remember people. Yeah, I, I saw uh, the first goal of Gianluca Vialli. <laughs> I saw, of course, Zola when he came. I saw Hulit when he came and played. Hulit played, never looked at the ball. He played like just the best Brazilians. The ball was just somewhere always uh, sort of attached to his feet. Was 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 something very beautiful to look. No, I saw all of them. That was way back. No, Ken Bates long before. But oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. It, it was was a very different. It was a different stadium too. I used to go uh, and sit very near the VIP box. And my biggest uh, thrill was I was about five seats from Bobby Charlton because it was Man U game. And he was, and that was my great hero. <laughs> I didn't want, at that time, Man U, that didn't matter. But he was one of the, you know, great hero of 1966. And we watched that and we loved the English team at that time. And, you know, I saw a lot of people there, interesting people. But, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a different Chelsea. But, you know, my, my daughter uh, married a Man U supporter. Can you believe it? Yeah, I mean, this is really. And I scared him, um, you know, when he asked, uh, when he came to ask for her hand. 
that's a, that's a pretty funny story. Uh, <laughs> I had a, a drink with him and I said, James, we know you, of course, and we love you, but there is a problem. And he's, he said, what, what, what do you mean? I said, that's a serious problem because, you know, we all Chelsea supporters and you, man, you are our biggest enemy. I would have, oh, he said, he was really taken. And I was dead serious, dead serious. And he said, oh, I know Julie has already, you know, been talking to me about it. Uh, I, I've taken him to Chelsea games already before. Anyway, and uh, uh, so uh, she's working on me. I said, listen, James, I've lived in this country for almost 30 years at that time. And you can get married, you can get divorced. You can change your political affiliation. You can change your religion. You even can change your sex. You can do whatever you want, but you never change the club you support. So you're okay. I don't expect, I hate the club you support, but that's okay. But I did give him a real, real scare. <laughs> but it is true in this country. There's one that if somebody start, start supporting another club, forget it. That's that's just not, not, not a real Englishman. Not yeah, a that's real, a lovely story. I guess yeah, least, <laughs> if you didn't have to respect the Man U affiliation, at least you could respect the fact that he was a real fan of, yeah, whatever team he was a fan of. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, some of my... You know, my, my wife's students, I mean, they support Crystal Palace. At the time, it was just like a joke of a club. Now it's a very good club. You never know. Wimbledon, Bright. I mean, look at all this club. Who would have thought? So you, you never know. If you stick to your club one day, and at that time, no, no. I started going to Chelsea game probably good 30 so there was not even, uh, Abramovich didn't even know where Chelsea was at that time. <laughs> just as an area. <laughs> well there was none of that one last sort of football related thing um, and uh this is jumping back to uh, a tournament from the past so euro 2008 was hosted jointly between austria and switzerland and given the rich history mm -hmm. of classical music that emanates from that part of europe i can remember that at the time i don't know if you'll remember this dima but itv and bbc's coverage they would play a lot of mozart Around the, around the games or the highlight shows. And in particular, I really like turning into ITV because they ran heavily with Mozart's uh, Queen of the Night. I think it's referred to as an aria. That's, that's like the, the peak yeah, of my musical which is what, 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 what Julia now is rehearsing oh, okay. uh, to, to sing in Britain. She is the Queen of the Night. Which, yeah, with, with I, all yeah. I love it. So speaking of, yeah, there's some songs. Um, that one, not so much with a specific club. That was for a tournament. But there's songs that are synonymous with football clubs. Um, and uh, for instance, um, You'll Never Walk Alone and Liverpool. Uh, Your Team Chelsea, when the game ends, they play One Step Beyond by Madness. Uh, the Villarreal faithful, they've been known to break out into a chorus of the Yellow Submarine. Their club's named after that. Of course, that's the, the Beatles classic. So I wanted to ask you if there's a specific song that is sort of intertwined with football culture that means a lot to you? Interesting question. I never, uh, well, now, of course, I know all the Chelsea songs, but they're not necessarily uh, classical. Though I did bring a lot of classical musicians to Chelsea games because the advantage of having four seats and somebody cannot come, so I could get uh, some of my, so, uh, you know, Tony Papano came, you know, the music director of the Royal Opera House. He came many times and became eventually Chelsea supporter because, you know, sort of by default. 
And then, uh, you know, John Williams, a fantastic guitarist. He came several times. He's an Arsenal supporter, by the way. And uh, we always used to take each other's uh, for dinner. If the team, if Chelsea won, I took him. And then if Arsenal, the Invincibles, he would he would uh, treat us for dinner. Anyway, so, and uh, Hvarostovsky, the great Dim uh, Dmitry Hvarostovsky, I took him to to the uh, to the football game and i remember he was asking me so they, oh so we're gonna meet abramovich i said absolutely not he said why <laughs> i said why do you want to meet him i said he said oh but you know we could ask i said listen are you sleeping well these days he said, he said yes so it's better if you don't meet somebody like that because <laughs> there's always a crime behind big fortune always and with the rational regards who knows anyway uh, it's better to stay to stay to stay away. I know people who know Abramovich, and I I saw him in his club one time. I went to see uh, a big Russian, um, actually rock star, who was performing at the Bridge. There is a, he built actually a, a space uh, in Stamford Bridge, which for five hundred people, and mostly they were Russians. And so I saw him very. I was never, you know, we have, uh, you know, friends in common, but. It's it's fine. I mean, if if he could get me a free ticket, I, I, I of course I wouldn't say no. But no, no, no. It's no. It's it's not necessary. Once I was invited into VIP box uh, in Mallorca, believe it or not, because it was Real Mallorca preseason game with Inter Inter Milan. What a great game! And because I was opening the music festival, it was the same press conference, and the owner of Real Mallorca was there, my manager was there, they all know each other. And he said, oh, uh, but Dima's a big football uh, uh, fan. So really, oh, so come and sit with a VIP. You know, that was some lineup in Inter Milan. Vieira was there, uh, Figo was there, you know, oh, that, there was just stars upon stars. Just So, and it's funny because two years later, I come back to Mallorca and uh, I asked my manager, who's been my manager there for many, many years. I said, Gonzalo, listen, uh, so how is it? I said, remember that owner of the uh, Real Mallorca? I said, yes, he's in jail. And the guy who was hosting press conference, you know, the head of the, uh, <laughs> like uh, the mayor of the, of the island, he's also in jail. So, you know, <laughs> it's better to stay away from the, <laughs> yeah, from the front. We don't want to incriminate you or, yeah, get you in, involved in anybody who has some dodgy sort of things going on. But when's oh, Abramovich going to invite you to perform at the bridge? Well, you know, if if he if he did invite, and if the price was right, I would go. Well, of course, because <laughs> 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 I'm sure he actually he he's he's quite. Uh, I know somebody in Munich who, is, who who used to know him early days, you know, where he came from and everything. So he 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 told me some interesting stories about it. I mean, he's he's not a simple guy, obviously. You you don't get it. and he's a quiet sort of uh, you know he's a, he's a he doesn't talk talk much and he's kind of like a sphinx figure, you know. He's not one of those you know Ebolian Russians and everything. And but he survived all this all these times so far and um it's it's a you know i was never that impressed by a wealth uh material wealth i'm much more impressed with the inner wealth 
you know, and I always felt like a millionaire, except not a monetary millionaire, although theoretically I am. If I ever sold my violin, I would be. But, you know, it, it's much more dear to me as what it does, you know. So, so $10 million you can spend actually quite quickly these days. So it's, it's, it's a different, different kind of, you know, dif different sense of values. But let me ask you before, before we finish, what's going on with Ozzy? Arsenal? Any Good question. I'll give you my opinion, I guess, which is that um, all of the things that were working in Arteta's favor last season are now potentially his hamstrings, I guess. And I think he's sorted out our defense. You were talking about Chelsea celebrating, you know, clean sheets. You have this new goalkeeper, Mendy, Thiago Silva's betting in, Chilwell's betting in. Slowly but surely, it's working out at the back, although in the beginning of the season, it was tough. We don't have that issue with regards to conceding goals. That kind of, at this point, is a non-issue. It's become the opposite, which is scoring goals. So in my opinion, he has a lot of a talented attacking players on the field, and they're too busy defending and not busy creating. Yanni probably shares, I would imagine, some of those thoughts, but what do you think, Yanni, as another Arsenal fan? Um, Ozil is a name that I'm looking forward to not having to talk about soon at the end of this year. Um, from what Arteta says, and I, I like the way Arteta communicates and it has instilled a trust in him that I have, um, apart from his managerial ability, um, it is footballing reasons. And I think there is something to be said for the fact that he, Freddy Jumberg and Unai Emery before him, regardless of what you make of their tactical managerial abilities, um, have all had a problem with Ozil. There are stories that under Arsene Wenger, Ozil was indulged to a certain extent, having off days, not going to games north of Watford, all of these things. Um, and I think Arteta is much more of a, someone who has a standard and expects people to meet those standards. And if they do, then they're great, they're in the team. And if they don't, then you can be as talented as you want. You can be the best player technically, but if you don't meet the standards, then you're not in. And personally, I think standards at Arsenal have been allowed to slip for too long. And so I welcome this change, even if it is hampering the team in the short term. Well, yeah, there you well, go. It's a, it's a very good answer. Very, very good understanding of it. Uh, it's just a shame such a, you know, he's probably already past his prime and all that, but he was a phenomenal talent. I remember when he was, you know, still playing and for Germany and then for Real Madrid. Uh, it's, it's a supreme, and occasionally flashes of it, but he never, he never could really get his um sort of uh concentration and you know every week every week you, are, you you cannot let your standards and that's where you know lampard might not have a brilliant game but you can always rely on him we're missing i think uh chelsea had such fantastic spine of the of the of the team it was check was absolutely always there terry was all, the longer we sort of away from Terry, the more it's like, you know, impossible uh, to, to em emulate. He was Ashley Cole, formerly as Arsenal, then, then Chelsea. He was massive. For, but also we all we had a great, great uh, defense with Carvalho and, and, and Gallus also. And, um, you know, and then there was Lampard. And Balak later, but anyway, Lampard, and then there was Drogba. That spine, even four people, you know, one in each position, held them together no matter. These guys, they came, they left, they came, they left. But as long as that spine was there, 
Well, I hope the new one will be formed. Until then, it'll be, you know, and every great team, like the Arsenal great team had that, exactly that. Had exactly yeah. that, you know, unshakable oh, spine of the team that just would not, uh, uh, you know, waver. And I think those those are the great. And look at Barcelona now. They've lost it. Uh, Real Madrid. I mean, Hazard was phenomenal for us. Phenomenal. By far the best player. What is he doing in Madrid? Yeah. Not yeah, I guess much. all good things oh, come to an nothing. end. Or the, huh? I was going to say, it's, it's all cyclical. All, all good things come to an end. And then you go through the bad times and you hope that sooner yeah. or later the good times will come back around. It's funny we were talking about Ozil, I guess. Someone who hasn't featured much for Chelsea, who could potentially be a similar player, is this Moroccan fella, uh, Ziek, kind of plays in a similar fashion. Yeah. Left-footed, kind of a creative yeah. player. Who it'll be interesting to see how eventually you guys manage to fit him, Havertz, Werner, Pulisic, all these guys onto the same pitch. You know, um, but that will play out as it plays out, I guess, as this season yeah. progresses. Yeah. I'm afraid you're probably right. There will be another case of Salah or De Bruyne because it's just too crowded. You know, there's so many in the same position. I mean, how can you play every week, you know, Mount and, and Pulisic and, and Zayek and Havertz and then Werner. And if you play Werner, you don't play Tommy Abraham, you know. And then where's Giroud? Giroud did great for us, actually. Great I love Charles. I, I think I he's really wonderful. World yeah. champion, for God's sake. I mean, really. Second highest all-time scorer in the history of the French national team, which is... Yeah. That's awesome incredible. Yeah. yeah. He They've just had some decent strikers. Who, yeah. who is the first? Platini or who is, who is the first? Uh, Henri is... Henri. Yeah. I mean, only by about first. seven goals now or something, which is yeah. easily catchable for Giroud. So, yeah. And they're all talking about, you know, the Giroud never scores. He scores important goals. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm hoping, uh, like yeah. you said, that a few of those talents do slip through the cracks at Chelsea. If that's the end result, yeah. I, won't, I won't complain. But that does bring us to the end of today's show. Um, so thanks, as always, to my co-host, Joe. Thank you to Yoni as well. And then a special thanks to our guest, Dmitry Sitkovetsky. Uh, Dima, it's been a pleasure. This was a brilliant conversation. We've loved having you on the pod. How did you enjoy yourself? Oh, thanks so much. I had a great, great time. I love talking football. And also, you know, we talked about music and life in general. It's been wonderful to talk to you guys. And uh, let's, let's, let's all, you know, survive that dark times without, you know, any effect on our psyche. That's the main thing. <laughs> it might Just already keep... be uh, too late for that. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're young. You've you, you, you got a whole life ahead of you. Though I do have probably thicker skin because of all the things that, that happened. That's true. There oh. is something to consider. <laughs> Great talking to you. Yeah, no, so much we won't we won't wait as long to catch up again uh, next time. But before you do go, how can our guests follow you and your work? And then is there anything coming up in your life that you're looking forward to? I know you'd mentioned that Julia, your daughter, is going to be performing hopefully in, in Germany soon. Do you have yeah. anything coming up? Well, you know, now, I mean, I, right now I should have been in Japan for a month. And all the concerts that I was uh, supposed to be doing, they are happening without me because they just stopped uh to Japan, none. So the concerts are only so the, the local Japanese musicians they benefit. You know they just totally cordoned off uh, the country as they used to do when the shoguns were in power. <laughs> they just cut it off. But you know it's one way to spend and and 
obviously it's COVID is not nearly as bad there or in Korea. I was supposed to be in Japan for a month and then a month and, and a week in Korea. And, you know, so uh, I'm, I, you know, my season, my brand new concert hall in, in Greensboro hasn't been opened. It's just sitting there, 3000 phenomenal facility for it. So it's a multi-purpose, it's for Broadway shows and everything. And they, you know, unfortunately, as you know, in the States, uh, the overruling factor is a financial factor. And they figured out in so many places, like, you know, the Metropolitan Opera canceled the whole season. New York Philharmonic canceled the whole season. It's cheaper for them to stay dark than to open for uh, a fraction of the capacity. They calculated for 90% capacity. If it's less, they lose money and they don't want to lose money. So they just keep it dark. And the, and the brand new facility, we, it's, it's like the flagship for the whole town of Greensboro. We've been working and, and you know, fighting to get it made and to raise the money and to get the permission all that for uh, out of, I've been there for 16 years or maybe 17 years almost. Um, good 10 years at least if not more no, more like 12 years now it's finally there and we can get there it's a shame. so i'm supposed to be there in january now but chances are not till april i don't think so so everything's just being pushed back to have a heart attack thinking about it you just have to think today is a good day you know uh everybody's healthy nobody's caught that bug you know, uh, everybody that I know, I mean, geez, uh, conductor, I went on stage the last two times uh, in St. Petersburg, uh, just died of it two weeks ago. Hmm. Unbelievable. It was such a shock. You know, there I was on stage with him when we, uh, since then, we've been in touch, you know, until sort of late August, and then he, he caught it and he's there. Mm-hmm. So it's not, not a laughing matter. I mean, it no, is no. a serious thing. You can yeah. be cavalier about it, but then you, you might, you might. So in a way, it's okay as long as we're healthy mm. and safe and in the in 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 our own homes. Yeah. We should be thankful at least for that. We're not in prison. This is not Second World or Third World War. Not the blockade of Leningrad where people were starving and eating eating each other. You know, for for no for. This is. Uh, in- <laughs> <laughs> major inconvenience but it's true it's not a right i mean like you except said. for those people, ex- except for those people who get uh, catch it and then die or or, or nearly you know or, or get very sick for those it, be, it could become a tragedy but for for the rest of us who don't no i don't think it's a tragedy i think no, it's, it's a massive it's a inconvenience like you said and it's up to, yeah, it's up to all yeah, of us to yeah. make sure that it passes sooner rather than later. Um, so hopefully you can christen that new venue in Greensboro, uh, maybe at the latest next year, it sounds like. But um, yeah, it's safe to do so. Obviously. But you can always, you, you know, you can always all the, the latest things because I've been a lot more active. Of course, now I, I just got my, you know, YouTube channel. So there the new videos or the new recordings will be there. But also my, my website will have as soon as I have something coming up i'm so almost afraid to put this estonian concert many of them i put and then 
that had to be canceled or disappeared or this and that and you know really so it's it's a little bit uh with with some trepidation but i should put it in because they already bought me tickets so it's just let's hope let's hope i see the stage before the end of the year <laughs> our fingers are crossed that, that website it's that's dmitrysitkovetsky.com yeah. What's your Twitter handle just for our listeners so that they can. Ah, it's uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the Twitter. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a Skype there. It's G Sitkovetsky with no, no dot. Okay. Perfect. Well, there you have it. So it Instagram is the same, is, is the same as, as, as Facebook. So thanks again, Dima, um, for, for you listeners, please do follow us on Twitter at Instagram where we are at United mates FP and then find us on Facebook under United mates football podcast. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and of each other. Goodbye.